Judges chapter 6. Up until this point, we've seen four, five, and some people say six judges that have been chosen by the Lord to help Israel in their greatest time of need. Over and over again, that again cycle will continue, and tonight begins a fairly long account compared to the others. In fact, this particular judge that we'll be looking at today is going to cover the next three chapters, and probably almost as much as Samson in terms of the total content that we have with regard to the ministry that he has been involved with or will be involved with. As we look at it tonight, this judge is going to be uh, on the scene again for just a, a short while, but there's a lot of information that's given about him. The judges that we've already looked at, remember, they encountered problems that were the result of the nation of Israel sinning against their God. That's been the case, and it will continue to be the case. But over the course of the first 150 years or so that have already transpired since Joshua's death, we've seen invasions from people groups outside of Israel, as well as within Israel. Um, first of all, uh, when Othniel was on the scene, the invasion came from a group of people from all the way as far as Mesopotamia, uh, Iraq, Iran, that area around the Euphrates River. And then there were the Moabites that attacked Israel. Uh, they were a people group that were in the southeastern border between the Jordan River and the nation of Israel at the time. Then internally there was the Philistines who should have been defeated, but they were not. And, and they're in the area which is known as the Gaza Strip today. Then there was the king of Hazor, which is a very large city in the northern territory of the nation of Israel, uh, around the territory of the Lebanon-Israeli border today. And then there were the Midianites and the um, Amalekites. They were the ones that will be on the scene in the study that we're going to be looking at today. So different people groups from various regions have been used by the Lord to bring the people of God back to himself. And he will continue to do that. And they will continue to fall into the same cycle of sin that they had begun after Joshua's death. Here in chapter 6, we find that the Midianites and the Amalekites are going to be that people group who will come on the scene and begin to oppress the people of Israel because, again, they had been delivered, but in their prosperity after that deliverance, they ended up falling away from God, falling back into sin, and chapter 6 is a result of that downward cycle, once again, that the people of Israel had been finding themselves allowing as they continued to not serve their own God, but instead to serve the gods of the Canaanites, the Baals. Chapter 6, verse 1 begins with the words, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. That's a phrase, remember, that is repeated often, and it's repeated here again in chapter 6. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of, 
of Midian for seven years. Now remember, the Midianites were a nomadic people. They didn't really have a specific territory that they called their own land. They just traveled around, usually in desert areas, and they used that lifestyle uh, even as far back as when Moses was on the scene. As a matter of fact, remember, Moses' father-in-law was a Midianite. But the Midianites now have begun to interfere with the children of Israel because it's the Lord's doing. He has brought them into the nation of Israel for the purpose of oppressing his people so that, once again, he can bring a deliverer to help them when they cry out to him. But they've been now, for a period of seven years, under this oppressive state of the Midianites and the Amalekites. So it says in verse 2, And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains. So it was, whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up. Also Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. So over that period of seven years, they would sow their seed in the springtime, in the, in the planting season, and then when the crops would become fully ripe, the Midianites would come in along with the Amalekites and the people from the east, and they would ransack the farmlands of the Israelites. So they find, find themselves hiding in dens and caves from the Midianites and the Amalekites to prevent them from uh, doing any harm to them personally, but they would lose all of the crops that they had planted. They would not be able to harvest any of their crops. It was a terribly difficult time for them because of that. It says in verse 4, Then they would encamp against them, the Midianites would camp, encamp against the Israelites, and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza. That's on the western coastline. Remember, the Midianites are on the other side of the River Jordan on to the east. So they come through sweeping across the land east to west. They would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, coming in as numerous as locusts. That's a really very impressive description of the invasive force that was coming against Israel. They were coming in like locusts. Um, I don't know if you've seen any videos of uh, locust swarms. It hasn't been all that long ago that there were several incidences in the Middle East of locust swarms that were uh, coming into various places like in Egypt and in Saudi Arabia and Qatar. And they were amazing when they showed the videos of these swarms of locusts just filling the sky, turning the sky dark. And that's the description that the Lord is giving through His Spirit of the invasive forces that are coming into the land uh, by God's choosing. Those Midianites and the Amalekites were an endless number of people. And so they were coming in and they brought their own camels and those camels that they rode in were also without number, and they would enter the land to destroy it, it says in verse 5. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. So there again, God brings it about that they were 
prospering, then they chose to disregard the things of the Lord and they remembered God no more. They fell into sin, worshiping the gods of the Canaanites. God brings the judgment and they cry out to the Lord because of the judgment. It took this time seven years for them to cry out. But they did indeed begin to cry out to the Lord and now he answers them. In verse 7 it says, And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. It's interesting to note this is the first mention of a prophet in the land of Israel since the time of Joshua. And God sends now this prophet to remind them, this is what I have done for you. Remember your history. But they did not obey. And over and over and over again, God would have to tell them, I warned you, but you did not obey my voice. What a terrible, terrible thing it is to know the will of God and yet not do his will. It is a very, very sad state of affairs for a people who have chosen to disregard the commands of God. They are still his people. He still loves them. He still wants them to turn to him and to obey him. But every single time he turns his hand against them and they come back to him, he gives them an opportunity by his grace to remember the things that he has done for them. This again is the first time that he's reminding of them, reminding them of that very fact that, that he had provided so much for them. He wants them by his mercy and grace to understand he's willing to let them return to him and serve him over and over and over again. They will not do what he has asked for them to do. How important it is for his people in this day as well as in that day to recognize the fact that God gives opportunity to obey him and to serve him. And he wants his people to do it in response to his love. And that's the difference, by the way, between this present hour for the church as opposed to the people of Israel under that Old Testament dispensation or that time of the law. Under the law, they were required to obey his commands in order for them to receive his blessings. He still wants his people to obey him, but the motive for obedience is not because we must obey the commands of God, the laws of God, the motive that we have is a motivation based upon his love for us and our response to his love. It's not because we have to obey, it's because we should want to obey. And that is the basis upon which, by God's grace and mercy, we now have the desire to obey because the Spirit of God dwells in us. 
were a completely different set of covenantal arrangement that we have with our God. But it was still based upon um, an obedience to his will and his plan for us. It was for that purpose that God has brought this prophet before them to remind them that it's his desire to have his people be obedient to all that he has commanded them. And again, verse 10 ends with that terrible statement, but you have not obeyed my voice. Well, verse 11 now begins the story of the deliverance that he's going to bring to them in spite of their unwillingness to obey. Again, this is God's grace. This is God's mercy. This is God's willingness to show himself faithful to his word. Verse 11 says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. A couple of things here in verse 11 that we see. It says, The angel of the Lord came. The angel of the Lord, by almost every modern scholar, conservative scholar, identifies the angel of the Lord 99.9% of the time as the pre-incarnate Christ, a theophany, a Christophany. It is a, an appearance of Jesus Christ in bodily form before he was born in Bethlehem so many years ago. Prior to that coming of the Lord in the flesh, he appeared in bodily form as the angel of the Lord. Over and over and over, we're going to see that. Now, Gideon, at first, does not recognize him as the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Whenever you see in your text all four letters, L-O-R-D, in caps, that is a reference to the Hebrew word for Elohim or Yahweh, Jehovah, that is the Lord, literally. But this is the angel of the Lord. And yet we're going to see that Gideon, again, isn't really aware of who this is until a little while later into the conversation. But here, he's identified as the son of Joash, a, a man who is a descendant of Manasseh. Uh, the Abiezrite family were descendants of Manasseh. So Gideon is from the tribe of Manasseh. Remember, the tribe of Manasseh was split into two half-tribes, one on the east side of Jordan, one on the west side of Jordan. He is on the west side of Jordan, within the land of Canaan very near the valley of Jezreel, which we have heard of before, that great valley where Armageddon will take place. Uh, that is a very large valley, and that is the territory of Manasseh. And so he is from that tribe, and he's doing something quite unique. He's threshing his grain, not on the threshing floor at the top of the hill, where wind can blow the uh, the. Uh, weak uh, fibers away, but instead he's threshing this wheat that he has harvested in a wine press. A wine press was not up on the upper part of the hill. 
it was usually in the valley where they would have a place where they could stomp on the grapes to make their wine. It was not a convenient place to thresh wheat. There would be no wind to blow the chaff away. So here he is doing that because he's fearful of the Midianites. He's doing it in hiding. He's trying to get enough wheat for him and his family and his father's family, and he's doing it in secret. So that's the situation that he's facing. The Midianites are in the land, and he knows that they would catch him if he was on the top of the hill. They would be, he would be so easily seen threshing wheat at the top of the hill. So he's doing it in secret in that lower area uh, in hiding. Verse 12 says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. This is how God sees Gideon. He says, You, Gideon, are a mighty man of valor. I find that very, very encouraging because later on as we read through the text, we're going to find that that's not Gideon's assessment of himself at all. But God says here, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and he says, the Lord, again, capital O-L-O-R-D, all caps. So he's talking, Yahweh is with you, you mighty man of valor. You know, when you have God with you, you needn't be afraid. That was the same then as it is now. Remember Jesus, when he left his disciples and ascended into heaven, before he ascended into heaven, he said, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Jesus said, I am with you. And he also said that before he left, he would send the Holy Spirit who would dwell in you and would be with you. So we have the presence of our God everywhere we go. And knowing that, we should never, ever, ever have any sense of fear, no matter what might happen in our lives. Friends, we are covered. We have been given a great promise by our Lord that says, I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. God is with you, and he wants you to know that tonight. Never, ever doubt that which he has promised. When he told Gideon, the Lord is with you, Gideon needed to understand that that was a promise that he could hold on to and never be afraid. But he had to learn that. And that's the story of Gideon that we will find as we move forward. There is a learning process that Gideon is going to now go through to recognize the fact that because God is with us, we have certain victory. He says in verse 13, Gideon said to him, Oh, my Lord, and that's not capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. He's saying Adonai. It's a different word in the Hebrew. It usually is master or sir. He's talking to an individual that he's not really fully aware of who this is. But he says, this man, in appearance of a man, who is resting under the terebinth tree, has just spoken to him and said, the Lord is with you. And so he's recognizing there's some degree of authority in this person 
but he's not really fully aware of who this person is. And again, he says, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord, Yahweh, is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. So Gideon is kind of complaining to this person before him that, hey, we're running into a really bad time here, and why is this happening? If the Lord is with me, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened? Now, I don't know if Gideon was aware of the statement that the prophet had been making that we just read about earlier, that the Lord sent the prophet to the children of Israel, who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, You have not obeyed my voice. That's the reason. Now Gideon is questioning still, why is this happening? If the Lord is with us, why then is all of this happening to us? And where are all the miracles that he used to do? We've not seen any of these things in our day, my friends, Perhaps we could be saying the same thing. Where are all the miracles that we know about as we read the book of Acts and we see through the letters of the Apostle Paul? Why isn't the Lord moving now as he used to in the earlier days of the church age? Well, why do you think, if you do think that, that he's not moving in miraculous ways? Perhaps not in directly in our lives, but you look around, around the world, there are many things that are taking place that can only be attributed to a miraculous move of God. And by the way, we do have miracles taking place in our present area, in our own church. Our friend Ernie had a stroke on Friday. He was out of the hospital on Monday with no apparent evidence of a stroke that's a miracle. And so we see these things. God is doing things in our lives. And whether we recognize it or not, He's doing them. I hope that we are recognizing and giving God the glory for it. But here, Gideon is saying, I haven't really seen any evidence of the fact that God is our God. So he's obviously a man who has not been involved greatly in Baal worship. However, his family is. And we'll see that as we move forward. Then the Lord turned to him in verse 14 and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? Now that is really amazing. God has turned him into a man who is a mighty man of God. And this might of yours, what might is that? The might that God gives to him. The might that God allows him to have for the purpose of serving the living God. His might isn't in his own strength. His might is in the fact that God has sent him. That's a powerful statement. If God has sent you, then you don't have to worry about having the strength. It's the strength that God provides that you can trust in. When we are weak, the Bible tells us, Paul writes it for our benefit, then he is strong. In us, 
He is strong and able to do great and mighty things. I'm reminded also of the fact that even Paul the Apostle wondered about his ability to accomplish that task that God had put upon him. He had questioned and wrote about it in one of the epistles saying, Who is sufficient for these things? Paul recognized in himself there is no good thing, but there is no reason to doubt God's promise to him because God says, I will do it through you. And that is what he's telling Gideon here. I have sent you, and you are the one who will deliver Israel from the Midianites. Now, that's a really tall order for a man who is a young man, a farmer, who has no real sense of any kind of strength or power or ability. In fact, that is the answer that Gideon now gives to the Lord, saying in verse 15, So he said to him, O my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. He kind of is saying the same kinds of things that Moses said when he was called. Hey, I'm a man who is unable to speak. I, I, I don't have any ability. I'm not the one that you should call for this task. Even Jeremiah questioned his calling. And God had this remind Jeremiah, I knew you in your mother's womb. I have called you. You're not too young for this task. I know what I'm doing. And he's reminding Gideon here that Gideon is also a man that he has called in spite of the fact that, yes, he is a kind of a weak individual, and in his own eyes, his own estimation, he is the least of his family. But when God chooses us, it's not that he ever chooses the mighty among us. In fact, it's just the opposite. Paul reminds us of that as well in the New Testament, that he chooses the weak to confound the mighty. He chooses the foolish to confound the wise. So it is with God in the Old Testament, and it is so also in the New Testament. God chooses us, not based upon our ability, but based upon his simple choosing for a task that he knows we can do if we but trust in him. Verse 16 says, And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Me plus God, that's a majority. You plus God, that's a majority. No question about it. When God says, I will be with you, you can do what God assigns for you to do. Verse 17 says, Then he said to him, well, if now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. Now, Gideon is going to be very careful to make absolutely sure every step of the way, if it is you, then show me that it is you. You know, I don't really have any real problem with that. I think that's probably wise. Lord, if you have spoken to me, I want to make sure that it is you who have spoken. Gideon is beginning to realize who it is that is speaking to him. And we're going to find that he's going to address him as the Lord in just a few verses from this point. But he's asking God, I want you to prove 
that this is indeed you speaking to me to do this particular task that you have now assigned to me. So if I found favor in your sight, and that seems to be apparently the truth as far as Gideon is concerned, but he wants to make absolutely sure. Show me a sign. Do not depart from me from here, he says in verse 18. I pray until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. And he, the Lord, said, I will wait until you come back. So Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket, and he put the broth in a pot, and he brought them out to him under the terebinth tree and presented them. Then the angel of the Lord said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. So he brought it to have a meal with this individual, but instead... He's going to make it into an offering unto himself on Gideon's behalf. He pours out the broth, he lays the unleavened bread and the meat upon the rock, just as he was told. And verse 21 says, Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread, and fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread, and the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. Now, Gideon knows this ain't no ordinary person. It was a visitation from the Almighty God. And he recognizes that fact, that because the offering was consumed, and because the angel of the Lord left him so suddenly, just vanished out of his sight, he came to the right conclusion. He says now in verse 22, Now Gideon perceived... Until then, he had not perceived, but now Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Now he's worried because he has seen the face of the Almighty God, the angel of the Lord, in this person that appeared to him. And he hasn't died. But he's concerned that he's going to die because that's what Moses was told. And I'm convinced that Gideon knows enough about what Moses had recorded in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible that they had available to them, that they never would be able to expect to live if they saw the Lord face to face. So he's now worried that he's going to live, uh, die from this encounter. and But he's now then ensured the Lord has already disappeared from his sight. But in verse 23, we read those words. Then the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. He heard the voice, but now he doesn't see the source of the voice. God is speaking to him, and he hears him, and he's assuring him, You will not die. So with that, Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. Jehovah Shalom in the Hebrew language, or Yahweh Shalom. The Lord is Peace. It's one of the names of the Lord that are recorded in the Word of God. There are several different names that are attributed to Yahweh that we could record and 
and refer to, but it's a study on its own that perhaps you might want to do. Find out those various places where the name of the Lord, Yahweh, is attached to some kind of characteristic like peace, or the Lord is our banner, or the Lord is our strength. They're all over the place in the Old Testament Scriptures. This is one of the places where that attribute is given. The Lord is peace. And it says, to this day, the day of the writing of this book by probably Samuel, to this day it is still in Ophrah of the Abiezrites, in that land of Manasseh, in that territory, that altar still was standing then. Verse 25 says, Now it came to pass that same night that the Lord said to him, again later on in the night time now, God speaks to Gideon, and he says to him, Take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the wooden image that is beside it, the Asherah. It's an image of one of the Canaanite gods. The altar was at his father's house. His father allowed worship of Baal and his own house. Gideon was well aware of this. Now the Lord is challenging Gideon, you've got to do this. If you are going to deliver the people of Israel from the Midianites, you must first remove evidence of the worship of Baal in your house. That's a very, very strong statement that the Lord is making, and we should be able to apply that to our own lives. We first must remove that which is not of God if we are to be used by God. That's something that we should always remember. Let's make it perfectly clear. If we're allowing ourselves to worship idols, and friends, idols can be very, very subtle things in our lives that keep us from worshiping the true God, that distract us from worshiping Him, idols of money, idols idols of position, all kinds of different idols in our lives that need to be dealt with if God is going to use us. He's doing that now with Gideon. He's saying you must destroy that altar to, to Baal and build an altar, in verse 26, to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement and take the second bull and offer a burnt offering with the wood of the image which you shall cut down. So take that altar of Baal and destroy it. Take the wood that is representing that uh, idol and use it to burn on the altar that you are going to build in the stead of the altar to Baal and you will offer this bull upon that offer altar to the Lord your God. Those are very specific commands that the Lord is telling Gideon he must do. And so it says in verse 27, So Gideon took ten men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him. But because he feared his house, father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. Now, don't take for granted that Gideon is a coward here. He's basically making a decision in order for him to accomplish this task. The only way that he can get away with doing it is by doing it under the cover of night. If he tried to do it in the daytime, they would not allow him. They would overcome him, overwhelm him. They would kill him. And that is exactly 
the truth with regard to the people who were worshiping Baal in that area. He tells us in verse 28, And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, there was the altar of Baal torn down, and the wooden image that was beside it was cut down, and the second bull was being offered on the altar which had been built. So they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And when they had inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Now, if you stop there, you might wonder, well, maybe they're excited that Gideon has torn down this altar. Yay, good for Gideon. That's not the case at all. Read on in verse 30. It says, Then the men of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, because he has torn down the altar of Baal, and because he has cut down the wooden image that was beside it. They want to kill Gideon, because he has destroyed their altar to Baal. Now, Joash, Gideon's father, was kind of complicit in the fact that the altar was on his property. But, he also recognizes that Gideon did a good thing because he did it for the Lord. And so now Joash, Gideon's father, is going to defend Gideon's actions against these very angry men who have come against him. And he says this in verse 31, But Joash said to all who stood against him, Would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him plead for himself, because his altar has been torn down. In other words, he's challenging these men. Look, if Baal is really God, he doesn't need to have anyone defend him. He should be able to defend himself. If he's truly God, then why hasn't he done anything on his own in retaliation for what Gideon has done? So that in Joash's eyes, it proves that Baal is a false god. If he were a true god, then he would not have allowed that sort of thing to have taken place. Friends, if your god can be destroyed, then he is no god at all. That's basically what Joash is saying. And so his argument is now being presented against the people who wanted to tear down Gideon and destroy him in retaliation for his having destroyed their God. It's a good argument, and therefore, it tells us in verse 32, on that day, Joash, he called him, Gideon, Jerubbaal. Jerubbaal means, let Baal plead or contend for himself. So he names his own son, Jerubbaal, and it's a name that apparently will stick. Let Baal plead against him because he has torn down his altar. That's why he's named his own son Jerubbaal. Verse 33 says, Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites, the people of the east, gathered together, and they crossed over and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. They're coming now in a large number of men against the people of Israel during the time of harvest. But Verse 34, and this is only the second time in this book that you see this phrase, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. That's a Holy Spirit baptism, like the day of Pentecost. He came upon Gideon 
to empower him for service, just like he did Othniel in chapter 3. He came upon Othniel also in the same way, to come upon him for the purpose of enabling him for power to serve. He comes upon the believer today in that same manner. Though he is already in you, he is also willing to come upon you for that purpose whenever it is that he wants to use you and use me. Let that be remembered as we continue to serve our God. We need the Spirit's empowerment. As it is with Gideon, so it is with us. So he comes upon Gideon and then Gideon blew the trumpet, verse 34, and the Abiezrites gathered behind him. And he sent messengers throughout all of Manasseh, who also gathered behind him. He also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they came up to meet them. So he's gathering together, him, uh, together a large force of men from the various tribes in that northern region of the nation of Israel. And they are going to be a fairly large number of people. About 30,000 men will gather together. Now, they're going to be facing an army of Midianites and Amalekites and the men from the east, whoever they are, of a total of around 135,000 men. So, there's really a very, very large discrepancy in numbers here. 30,000 compared to 135,000 that doesn't seem likely to be enough men to defeat this very large army that has gathered together in the valley of Jezreel against the nation of Israel. So Gideon kind of has a problem. God has said, I will deliver them into your hand. You will defeat them as one man because I have sent you. But now he's only got about 30,000 men to face this large army. So he does the right thing. He goes to the Lord in prayer. And verse 36 says, So Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only, and it is dry on the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. So Gideon is proposing a test, if you will. It's called a fleece. And oftentimes you'll hear reference to, I will make sure that the Lord is in this by suggesting this fleece, this test, if you will. And it's not necessarily something that I recommend, although I think that God will honor that if that's the way that you choose to approach the promises of God to you in your particular case. But be careful to note that what Gideon is saying here is, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. So Gideon is not sure. And he wants to be sure. So in that way, I think Gideon's test is actually a good thing this time. But notice what he says. If you do this, I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. So it's a test that Gideon is making before the Lord, and the Lord is going to honor this. But Gideon is actually saying, this will be all that I need to convince me that you are indeed in this with me. So it tells us, 
And it was so, verse 38, when he rose early in the morning and squeezed the fleece together, he wrung out dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. An amazing thing. Just exactly as Gideon had asked. There was water on the fleece, but no water on the ground. And when you wring out the dew out of that fleece, that it fills an entire bowl, that should tell you there's an abundance of affirmation on God's behalf as he's actually done exactly as Gideon had requested. But now, Gideon's beginning to think, well, maybe that really wasn't enough to convince me after all. So now Gideon proposes a second fleece, if you will, to the Lord. He says in verse 39, Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. And by the way, when I read that, I'm reminded of Abraham. Remember when Abraham was walking with the Lord, and the Lord had said, Abraham, I'm about to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham questioned the veracity, the, the, the logic behind his doing that. Well, what if there are 50 men in the city? Would you destroy the city for 50 men? And the Lord said, no, I won't destroy it if there are 50 righteous in the city. And then Abraham said, well, forgive me to ask again, but, but what if there were only 40 men? Would you destroy it for just 40? And the Lord said, no, I won't destroy it for 40. And then Abraham continued, well, Lord, if, if you don't mind my asking another time, I, I just want to make sure, what if there's only 30? And then he asked again, what if there's only 20? What if there's only 10? And the Lord finally said, I will not destroy it if there's only 10. And that apparently satisfied Abraham. But note the fact that Abraham was asking more than once, are you sure? Will you do this? Are you sure? Will you do this? So he's testing the Lord. And that's no different than what Gideon is now doing this second time. He's going to say in verse 39, Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. Let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. Let, let it now be dry only on the fleece, but on the ground let there be dew. Just the opposite. The first time, put the dew on the lease, let the dry ground be obvious. And now, in this case, he says, let the ground be wet, but let the fleece be dry. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on the ground. What that tells me is God understands. Sometimes we want to be sure. We'll ask by placing a fleece before the Lord. Sometimes we still have questions in our heart. Are we absolutely certain? We want to be doubly sure. That was the case with Gideon. I'm not apt to suggest that Gideon should have accepted the first test. Because I see myself in this. And I hope you see yourselves in it as well. But God was willing, in spite of his uncertainty, in spite of his unwillingness to accept the answer that God had first given him. He's willing to go with this same man because he chose him for that purpose.
And God is willing to bear that uncertainty in our minds, in our hearts as well. But we need to understand, when God says, I am with you, no matter what we may be in our own minds, we're God's children. And if He's called us to do a task, He doesn't call us to do it in our own strength. He provides the means. Always has, always will. That's the God we serve. That's the God that Gideon is serving. And he's going to see, as he continues serving the Lord, though there are very, very time, large problems that he's going to have to face, God will always be on his side if he trusts in him. So it is with you and me. Until that day we see him face to face, may we be faithful in being willing to serve him too. Amen.